We're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 34 this morning. You can turn there if you have your Bible, or it's also printed in the bulletin. See uh, pages 6 and 7 is a place to take notes. Give ear now. This is God's word. Thus says the Lord God, My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. And I will bring them out from the peoples, and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice." I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord God. This is God's word. Well, as I said before, this is the beginning of the Christmas season. And we're going to spend the next three Sundays looking at what we're going to call the three loves of Christmas. We're going to see how Christmas teaches us to love Christ this week. Next week, we're going to see how he teaches us to love the church. And then uh, the following week, we're going to see how Christmas teaches us to love the world. Now, these three loves tie directly into a plan for discipleship for Harbor that we've been working on and our actually today, even beginning to roll out for you. Um, some folks, some of our leadership got together. We wanted to define a path. Like, what does it look like to grow spiritually? And not just that, but to help each other grow. Like, how do we help one another grow? 
um, so that we become more mature, so that we can experience more of God's presence in our lives, um, and, uh, and so that we can become a community of people who are helping each other to become more of what God wants us to be in the world. And so as we studied this, prayed about this, and worked on it, we've come to the conviction that spiritual maturity can be defined as having three loves in our lives. Okay, three loves that are growing. And we have a slide that illustrates it. Oh, there it is. Okay, this is what we are calling the matrix. This is the matrix. And you've got a bulletin insert uh, that, uh, that also has more details. This is really an introduction. This is the beginning of what we're going to be talking about in terms of what discipleship is going to look like here at Harbor. Now, with this matrix, essentially what we're going to look at, this introduces the three loves. Okay, and so loving Christ, loving the church, loving the world. We feel like if you have those three loves in your life and those loves are growing, then you are a healthy Christian. And as those loves grow, you grow spiritually. Okay, and you need all three. But as we were looking at defining these three loves, we realized that there are three aspects of what true love is. Okay, true, genuine, lasting love, it involves knowing, being, and doing. Okay, and so what this did was this produced this three by three matrix for us that we're, I'm really, really excited about this. I think this is going to help us immeasurably as a church, as individuals, to become more of what God wants us to be for his sake, for each other's sake, and also for the sake of the world where God's called us to live. And so we're going to have a lot more information that's going to come out in January. We're going to have some brochures, things that you can sort of read and, and, and study on your own. All that's coming. But for this season, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the three columns. Okay? We're going to look at these three loves because Christmas really teaches us to have these loves. Jesus came from heaven to earth so that we would have these three loves in our lives and that they'd be growing. And so today we're going to look at it in Ezekiel 34 that Christmas teaches us to love Christ. Okay, and so let me give you the three points. We're going to see these in three points today. You can write them down there on page 7 if you want to take notes. First, we're going to see the need for Christmas. Second, the promise of Christmas. And then third, the love of Christmas. Okay, so the need, the promise, and the love of Christmas. So first, the need. Israel has a desperate need at this point. Israel is in exile. Okay, they have been kicked out of the promised land and God is coming to them through the prophet Ezekiel to speak to them, to explain how they got where they are in exile, to confront them and and deal with them so that they would get their hearts right before God and return to a relationship with him. And then God is going to, and then God spends portions of Ezekiel talking about what's going to happen in the future. Okay, and so we see that Israel has a dying and pressing need because they have been scattered. Okay, verse 6. My sheep were scattered, wandered all over the mountains, all over the face of the earth with no one to seek after them or, or, uh, or to search for them. And so what we see here is that in this passage, the fault, the fault of the sheep actually rests with the shepherd. Okay, we're just so we're going to be looking really at um, that, that God is coming after the shepherds of Israel. Okay, and these were their kings. Okay, these are the kings and the rulers of Israel, not just the priests. Okay, in the ancient Near East, the term shepherd was used to describe both the title and the responsibility of a king. Okay, and so you can find not just in the Bible, although it is in the Bible, even outside the Bible, kings were described as the shepherds of 
their people. And so God is coming against the shepherds. He's coming against the former kings of Judah and Israel. He's coming against the wicked kings because the kings were supposed to care for their people. Right? I mean, we even, we just finished the whole series on Samuel. Right? In the Samuel series, we saw that Samuel, uh, I'm sorry, that Saul started out as a good king caring for his people and then quickly he became consumed and instead of taking care of his flock, he became consumed with himself. He became concerned only for his own reputation, for his own prosperity, for his own, uh, for his own glory. And he began to neglect the people of Israel. And so the kings were supposed to gather those who strayed. They were supposed to lead the flock to good pasture, to clean drinking water, and to take special care of the poor and the weak. You know, problem was that for these shepherds, they saw the sheep as food. You know, so instead of feeding the sheep, they fed on the sheep. It's interesting. I mean, they felt like these sheep, they took office. We could say they took office knowing that they were supposed to care because these sheep belonged to God and instead decided that these sheep belonged to them and existed for their own gain, for their own personal gain. Now, it's interesting because as God comes against them, I mean, we see a bunch of things. First, if a shepherd acts this way, if a king or a ruler, and it's interesting because they're kings and rulers, this is really talking about not just spiritual leadership, but this is public leadership as well. Every, every leadership role in the church, in society, has a pastoral responsibility associated with it. Okay? God calls leaders in every sphere of life to shepherd the people that they're responsible for. Okay, that is what leadership is. Authority is designed to image the authority of God and how he leads. And so what we're talking about here deals with, again, me as a pastor, right? Deals with pastors and elders in the church, but it also deals with public leaders. It deals with company leaders, organizational leaders, and it deals even with any influence. In one sense, we all have authority and influence over others, right? We all have responsibility to lead other people, even in small ways, right? In family, we see that. With our friends, we see that we have influence on each other. We have impact on each other. Um, We see it at work. And so this is talking about all leadership, all leadership. And when you begin to, when you begin to, uh, to corrupt your leadership, when instead of serving the folks that you have influence over, when you begin to serve yourself with them and use them and abuse them, I mean, sort of a, a progression happens. I mean, number one, your character gets defamed, right? Nobody trusts you anymore. I mean, so that's a problem. But it's also bad for the people. It actually ruins the sheep. It causes them to be scattered. But the worst thing that we find out in our text is in verse 10. If you look at verse 10, the ultimate consequence of not shepherding people is what God says here at the beginning. He says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. What you find is if you walk down this road where you look at your authority and use it to serve yourself, what you find is that God is against you. I mean, think about that. That's, that's kind of startling, right? 
And, and usually what happens, we don't think about it that way. Usually we cut a corner here or we maybe cheat a little bit on the side. And we, you know, at the beginning, we don't think that we're going to end up face to face with a God who says, I'm against you. But that's where it leads. Ultimately, that's where it goes. And so this, so this is the situation that Israel was in. They were sheep scattered. And I think it doesn't take us, it's, it's not too much of a stretch for us to recognize, I think we see the same scattering in our own lives. Don't we? I mean, don't we feel scattered? Don't you feel scattered too? I think so many of us, I mean, we get scattered, even abused by the influences of our culture, by the influences of the world around us. I mean, it's, again, it's not to throw rocks, but just try to understand. Financially, I think we get abused. Financially, I think all of us are subject to abuse because there is a clear message that if you don't have certain things, if you don't wear certain clothes, if you don't, you know, have a certain amount of money, you can't be happy. Right? There is a financial shepherd, you know, I mean, you can call it the God of money, who is desperately trying to lead you astray, who is trying to scatter your life. And the way that that God does that is by trying to convince you that money is the most important thing in your life. And if you bow down to that by giving into the desire for things, by making bad decisions because you want to have things, then you will find your life scattered. I mean, truly scattered. I think sexually we're scattered and abused. Because again, we are being constantly bombarded with a message that if it feels good, do it. I mean, there are, there are commercials now that honor adultery, that promote it. Um, I saw an ad for, um, it, was a, uh, it was one of these matchmaking websites, you know, where you can go in and basically the commercial was a guy waking up with his wife, getting out of bed in the morning, and realizing how depressing it was to be with her. And so the answer is you need to go to this matchmaking website and find someone else. I mean, I don't need to, I really don't need to go. I mean, but, so, but you need to understand that there is a God of sexuality that exists in the world, and that God is trying to get you to bow down to it. It's trying to get you to look lustfully at people, to act lustfully with people. It's, it's trying to get you hooked on all manner of pursuit of pleasure and sexuality outside the context of marriage. And what it's trying to do, it, it, it's when, you, when we give in to that, it's abuse. We find ourselves abused and we find our lives scattered. I mean, really, our lives get scattered. Portions of our lives get scattered across the whole face of the earth, in a sense. It's like the, the ruins of who we were get plastered across the mountainside. Same thing happens work-wise, right, with career. We are sold a bill of goods. And if you don't get to this level, if you don't have this much productivity, if you don't work this many hours, if you don't have this promotion, and again, it's a God that's saying, bow down. There are leaders in our culture. There are, you know, there's a message saying, you need to bow down to these things. And every time we do, our lives become scattered. So, I mean, work-wise, ideologically, and it's hard. I was reading this morning, just in my Bible reading, Psalm 115, verse 8, I came across this. It just says, those who make idols become like them, and so do all who trust in them. And that's kind of what happens, right? When you begin to bow down to the idol of finances, you become consumed with finances. You become a person that all you think about is finances. If you bow down to the idol of sexuality, 
you also end up being sex crazed. You end up thinking about nothing but, right? I mean, you understand that process. When we trust in idols, we become like them. Psalm 115, verse 8. And this is what causes us to cry out with Isaiah, right? When you understand how scattered your life is, when you understand the portions of your life that are scattered, that's what moves us to cry out, Oh God, would you open the heavens and come down? I mean, that's, that's our need. We need, because we know, I mean, just like God says here, there is nobody, the shepherds aren't searching after you. And so we need God to come down and save us. And what's amazing here is that in our verse, in verses 11 to 16, God says, okay, I will. God says, I will come down. And this is the promise of Christmas, point two. The promise of Christmas. So we saw the need for Christmas, now the promise of Christmas. We cry out, and God says, I'm coming. I will come. And what's amazing about this passage, I mean, but from verses 11 all the way to the end of the chapter, is that we see over and over and over again pictures, pictures of what will happen when God does finally come. And we see that when he comes, I mean, Christmas, you know, I guess I want to kind of connect the dots for you. He comes in Jesus, right? Christmas is when God came to fulfill these promises. The coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of these things because we see it. When Jesus finally comes, he comes in judgment, right? He comes to judge. The shepherd comes to judge the false shepherds, right? I mean, we see this. And so as you think about judgment, God says, I'm going to come, I'm against the shepherds, verse 10, verse, uh, verse, verse 16 at the end, the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. God is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to oppose them. And we need to understand, when we talk about judgment, this is pretty much true, I think just about everywhere in the Bible where it talks about this, judgment for God is always rooted in a profound pastoral love for his sheep. Okay, God doesn't judge because he has this, uh, this sadistic desire to inflict wrath on people. Okay, that's not why he comes in judgment. He comes in judgment because he loves his sheep and he will do anything to protect them. Okay, you need to understand that. I mean, because sometimes passages about judgment get taken out of context and you get this image of a God that's not true to who God is. And so... The solution is that God's coming to judge the false shepherds. And this is exactly what Jesus does, right? When he comes, he opposed the awful religious leadership of his day. He opposed the would-be shepherds, the supposed shepherds, and confronted them just like God said he would, right? We see that Jesus does what God said he'd do. And so this is really a good word for us against bad leadership. I mean, this applies to the church. If you see anything in my life where you feel like I am using you to get rich, to get wealthy. You need to confront me. You need to do something about it. I mean, as I was reading this passage this week, I mean, this is one of those passages that kind of caused you to step back and think, oh man, like this is heavy. And to me, you know, judgment begins with the house of God. And so this passage is a criteria to use with the pastors and the elders in the church. But even, but, but more than that, again, remember that the shepherds in this passage refer to the rulers and the kings as well. Right? And so God is saying that all leadership will be judged and any abuse of leadership will 
find itself face-to-face with God. So again, public leadership, organizational leadership, friendship leadership. When you lead your friends by giving them advice, I mean, these are things that will come under the scrutiny of God. So Jesus, when he comes, he does that. He pronounces judgment. He says, this city is going to be laid waste because you wouldn't receive me as your Savior. And it was in 70 AD, 35 years later. Jesus gave them a whole generation to wake up. And when they didn't, judgment came. But the shepherd also comes to save. And here we see amazing pictures of Jesus. In verse 11, it says, I myself will search for my sheep. Jesus, in Luke 15, says, The good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one who has strayed. And when he finds him, he rejoices and carries it back to the flock. Verse 15, God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Verse 16, God says, I will seek the lost. Luke 19, 10, Jesus says that I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. Verse 31, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. John 10, 14, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I mean, what's exciting about this, there's a bunch of other pas- like phrases in this chapter that you can find places in the New Testament where Jesus makes all this stuff come true. All of this means that Jesus, when he comes, he's not just the shepherd, right? When Jesus comes, he doesn't come just as shepherd, but he comes as God. He comes as God. This is one of the strongest proofs that Jesus is so much more than a man, right? Clearly you see God promising, I myself will come and do this. I myself will come and do this. I myself will come and do this. And when Jesus comes, he says, it's me. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I mean, this is, again, strong proof that the Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time is Emmanuel. He is God with us. God didn't just shout out help. He didn't just send somebody to help. Isaiah 63, I think it's verse 5, has this amazing thing where God says, I, you know, the day of salvation came and I looked, but there was no one to help. So I came down myself to save my people. And that's what Jesus does. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus comes to seek and to save. And how he saves, how he saves is remarkable. Verse 10 says, that God is against the shepherds and he will require his sheep at their hand. Not sure if you really caught the, the meaning of that. I didn't catch it when I first read it and the second, third time I read it too. If you jump over, there's a passage in Genesis 31 where Jacob is talking to Laban and giving an account of his own sheep herding. He's, uh, he's giving his, an account of his own shepherding for Laban's flocks. And this is what he says. He says, these 20 years I have been with you Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. Okay, so he's saying, I didn't get fat on your sheep. And then he says, what was torn by wild beasts, I didn't bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. And so what verse 10 of our passage is telling us is that God is going to make the false shepherds pay for the sheep that they have destroyed. 
He's going to call them to account and make them pay. Now, here's what's amazing, is that when Jesus comes as the good shepherd, when he comes to rescue his sheep and to bless them, when he comes to free them and liberate them, when he comes to gather them all back and bring them into good land and good pasture, the way that Jesus saves them is by paying the price himself. In his death, he pays the price for our sins. In his death, in a sense, he pays the price for the bad shepherd's sins so that he can come and find us. So that he can actually, when he finds us, he can free us. The only way he can free us is by paying the price for our sins. And this is what he says he'll do in John 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it's interesting because not like, like Jacob, back then shepherds, when they gave an account, they either had to produce the sheep or they had to produce a piece of the carcass to show that the animal had been torn, you know, had been captured by a wild animal. And they just, so you had to produce some bit of the carcass in order to do that. What's amazing about Jesus is that instead of producing the carcasses of those who have been destroyed, Jesus raises from the dead those who have been destroyed. He gives you new life. He doesn't just leave your carcass there. He doesn't leave you scattered. He doesn't find you dead and just pick you up and bring you back and say, well, God, okay, here's another one. Are you counting? I didn't lose any of them. Here are the carcasses all laid up in his death, but then in his resurrection, Jesus brings new life. He brings new life to you if you believe in him. When you trust in him, he comes close and he saves you by giving you new life. He puts his spirit in you. We're going to see that even more in a couple of weeks. But the point is he brings his sheep back to life and not one is lost. Not one is lost. And so the cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until you, the Son of God, appear, right? That's the cry of our hearts when our lives feel scattered, isn't it? Come, come, God, be with us. We need you with us. If you're not with us, we will not get better. And so the cry that we cry at, O come, O come, Emmanuel, gives way to, O come, let us adore him. Let us adore him. Do you adore him? Do you understand how this passage teaches you to love Christ? This passage paints such a glorious picture of what Jesus Christ does for you. He left heaven. It opened and he came down as God to save you. And he did it by paying the ultimate price. And he went through death and resurrection, not for himself, but so that he could bring you back from the dead, so he could give you new life, so he could fill your heart with new life and new love and new desires. That's the joy. That's the love of Christmas. Mm. I mean, it makes me want to worship him, right? It makes you want to worship him. This brings us to our third point. We saw the need for Christmas, the promise of Christmas, now the love of Christmas. And again, our discipleship plan has these three aspects. What does it mean to love Christ? Well, there's an aspect of knowing him. There's an aspect of being in relationship with him. And then an aspect of doing service for him. Okay? That's what love for Christ looks like. You know, and so first... The no category, right? What does it mean to love Christ? If you're going to love Christ, well, you got to know him, right? And what do you learn from this passage? You might not have known this. I mean, honestly, you may not have known 
that Jesus is your shepherd. And so this passage teaches us, Christmas teaches us, that Jesus comes to be your shepherd. And so you learn, you actually get to know that Jesus is your shepherd and that he does all these things for you. It's an amazing blessing. What happens? What this causes, this new knowledge, this causes a Copernican revolution, okay? Remember Nicholas Copernicus from uh, school days? Maybe not. 1400s, 1500s. He was the astronomer who basically changed everything. Uh, He argued that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. He argued that the earth revolves around the sun, and this became known as the Copernican Revolution because it revolutionized astronomy, it revolutionized science in profound and deep ways. Well, when we understand the real meaning of Christmas, okay, that Christmas is about loving Christ, we undergo that same revolution personally, okay, because we realize that our lives don't revolve around ourselves, but our lives revolve around the sun. That's right, it's S-O-N. Our lives revolve around the sun. It's the son of God, the son of God who was born in a manger who came to be our shepherd, came to shepherd us. And so your life, this might sound like bad news, but it actually ends up being good news, but your life is not about you, right? When your life is about you, inevitably you end up scattered. When your life is about him, he leads you back into green pastures beside still waters. He leads you in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so loving Christ recenters our lives and it brings us back. It recenters us. And you've had that experience, right? If there are areas of your life where, you've, where you feel scattered, right? Maybe it's your whole life. Maybe it's just one part of your life. Either way, if you're a Christian or not, recentering your life around Jesus will bring you back. And what that means is saying, Jesus, I have wandered. I've been like a sheep and I've wandered away. Maybe other people have influenced me, but I've made decisions to go down the wrong roads. And I'm sorry. Will you bring me back? Will you forgive me and lead me back? Jesus says, absolutely, absolutely. So these are things that we know about Christ from this passage. Well, what about being? Well, being, in order to be, you need to not just know that Jesus is a shepherd, but you need to experience his shepherding love. Okay, so in this area of being, you need to experience the shepherding love. So not just know that he's a shepherd, but let him be your shepherd. Let him lead you. This is why he came. This is why he died. This is why he rose again to lead you back into the best pasture, into the best life that you could possibly have. Not necessarily a life that is judged by the world's standards as the best, but a life with the most happiness, the most real joy, the most comfort, the most security. Okay, now sometimes those things look very different, okay, because sometimes we find unbelievable security in poverty rather than in wealth. Okay, sometimes we find security comes knowing that we didn't get the promotion because even though we didn't get the opportunity, we know that God is smiling on us because of how we're conducting ourselves at work. There is a security that lasts when Jesus is your shepherd. And so Jesus says, you look at verse 16, if all you want to know, I mean, not all that that you want to know, but so much of what Jesus does as shepherd is in verse 16. He seeks the lost. He'll bring back the strayed. He'll bind up the injured. You know, like if you are struggling with something, if you're having difficulty with something, he will bind up the brokenness in your heart. If you've got desires that you wish weren't there, I know I've got them and I'm working on them. And over time, Jesus is binding up parts of my injured heart. He strengthens the weak. Boy, don't you need that? I mean, sometimes, (laughs) I don't know, sometimes you feel like, 
you're, you're kind of just sprinting through the week and you just barely make it to another Sunday to get here to, to get fed again. I mean, Jesus is here to give you strength. And he does that. He does these things through his word, right? He teaches us through his word. He does it through the relationships that we have that remind us of him. You know, sometimes it's not a Bible verse that we need, but we need a hug from someone. (laughs) Sometimes we just need encouragement, not necessarily a quote from a verse, but someone just to care about us and love us and just listen and say, yeah, you know what? You're going to make it. You know what? God has brought you through a lot worse than this. He's going to get you through this too. That gives us strength. That gives us strength. And these are the things that when we understand how he does these for us, it makes us love him. You know, it's knowing, but then it's being in relationship with him. And then the last piece is doing, is doing. Our, you know, true love for Jesus means it involves doing. Not doing to earn his love, but doing because you have his love, right? Doing because what else are you going to do with your life when he's loved you this way? When he has gathered you from your scatteredness and brought you back in, made you whole, cleansed your heart, filled you with his love and strength, how can't you serve him, Right? And so serving him in response to what he's done. So this means having gratitude. Then this means shepherding others. You know, again, going all the way back to where we started, right? That authority in life, in the church, in the public sector, in the the workplace, in your families, in your friendships, all, I mean, all, uh, you know, authority involves shepherding others. When you do that, here's what's amazing. When you do that, you actually show the love of Christ through you. You give people the chance to actually experience firsthand the love of Christ. And that's what people, I mean, especially when people feel far away from Christ. I mean, that's exactly what they need. They need you. They need you in their lives to be that example. You know, Christ isn't showing up for them. Their prayers are hitting the ceiling. They feel like their hearts are dead and cold. Your love for them, the way you shepherd them and care for them can be what Christ uses to bring them back. And so we serve him in all these ways. And again, I mean, just, we don't want to get lost on the doing, but I mean, that's where it drives us, right? We're driven by the love of Christ. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ compels us because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. So when doing becomes a problem, like when doing becomes tedious, when doing becomes drudgery, when doing becomes, oh man, do I really have to do this? Chances are you're not operating in love or you're not operating out of love. And so you need to go back to the B category and experience that love of Jesus and let that love compel and motivate you, right? And if remembering that doesn't get the engines going in your, in your heart, then go back to the no. Right? And say, okay, wait, what am I forgetting about Jesus? What has he done for me? Well, I had to cry out that God would open heaven and come down, and he did that. <laughs> he did that. He left glory above, equal with the Father, and came down. And he didn't just come down, but he came down and stood on the earth, and then he got down and took on the form of a slave. Right? And then he went down even farther and died for you. For you. And then he rose again so that you could know for sure that there is an answer and that there's hope for your heart. There's hope that it can get soft again. And it's, it all comes through knowing Christ, through being in a relationship with him, and for doing 
loving service that flows from being in relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father, I am so (laughs) overwhelmed and excited about how you love us and the way that you care for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming from heaven, for hearing our call, the cry of our hearts, and coming to us so that you might minister, so you might save us and bring us back from our scattered ways. Jesus, if there are people here today who are experiencing that scattered life, draw near to them and help them see your love first so that they would experience your closeness again. Bless us even now as we experience your presence in the Lord's Supper. We pray this in your name. Amen.